0: Hey everyone, you're listening to Spark, where we amplify the voices of the Middle East startup tech and innovation ecosystem. I'm your host, Shireen, and along with our guests, we share with you expert insights on the latest and most relevant news. Our goal is to help you easily digest trending topics and be better equipped to know what to make of it all.
1: Hi listeners, today's episode is going to focus on the publishing industry in the Middle East. We also get into the nuances of the Arabic language itself to consider whilst publishing, And finally, we discuss how we can teach machines Arabic to aid in the content publishing industry in the region. Before we get to today's topic, I'd like to give you my insights on some recent news in the regional and international tech ecosystems. Let's start with Amazon's announcement of its new payment service. Though I was excited at first to learn about new payments developments in the industry, I soon realized that the news was simply a rebrand of Payfort. Payforce was one of the earliest fintech success stories in the region, established in the Middle East, and it was then bought out by Amazon. But it always kept its original name. I guess it was time for a rebrand. They do offer some pretty cool stuff to merchants, such as integrated dashboards to gather insights on retail activity. In other fintech news, as I was checking out at IKEA this weekend, I peered into the cashier's screen only to recognize a fintech company that's recently been in the news, and that's Tabby, who have recently made headlines for raising a Series A funding round. I asked the cashier how I can use Tabby and she instructed me to scan a QR code and follow the instructions. I must say the process was quite easy to follow. And finally, I was left with my rather large IKEA bill cut into easy installment payments at no interest. But I must say I wish Tabby had done a better job coordinating some kind of marketing campaign with IKEA to teach its customers about its product because it's simply great and people need to know it exists. Had I not been nosy at the cashier, nor aware of what Tabby was to begin with, I would have missed out, as I'm sure other people shopping at IKEA do. Not too long ago though, I encountered another one of these buy-now-pay-now-later fintechs in the market these days, and that's Postpay. They too had an easy-to-use experience and I happened to stumble upon them as a payment option while shopping online at a Dubai-based e-retailer. Only other difference was, Postpay required one additional step, which was to add my Emirates ID. Now onto some more troubling news in the ecosystem, Spree has recently filed for bankruptcy. Now this is a harsh reality that not all tech startups make it big. Though the media does not really cover unsuccessful startup stories, it is a reality that entrepreneurs need to know going into venture building. That being said, Spree was not by any means a startup that had not taken its foot off the ground yet. In fact, it had raised close to $15 million in a Series A round just in June last year, which made it the second best funded startup in its category. In sad fact, two other Dubai-based e-commerce startups, Awakam the Modest, shut down earlier this year, though they too had raised tens of millions of dollars. Now on to some international news. Ex-British Royals Harry and Meghan have signed a deal with Spotify to produce a series of exclusive content under their newly established audio production company, Archwell Audio. Though the British Royal family seem to draw a natural audience, given how private Harry and Meghan have been about their personal lives... I wonder how effective they're going to be sharing to a wider audience through a medium as intimate as podcasts. Maybe all their shows will be non-Harry and Meghan related, but we'll have to see. Today's guest on the show is John Lillywhite. John has had tremendous experience in the publishing industry in the region, having established his own entrepreneurial ventures, as well as within publishing companies. I do hope you enjoy our conversation and more importantly, learn from it. But before we get to it, quick shout out to Bahrain. They celebrated their 49th National Day holiday last week. And for those of you who don't know, Bahrain's startup ecosystem is highly ranked globally for being business friendly. And within the fintech space, they have a very forward thinking regulator who was the first in the region to embrace open banking. Now let's jump to it.
2: Okay, great. Yeah. Hi.
0: Now, John, you're making headways. Uh, or headway, I think is the correct way to say it. Localizing and digitizing media. And you're doing that out of the Middle East. So I'd love to talk on both aspects, the localization and the digitization. And I know you've done it in both contexts. You've done it both in for a corporation and in the capacity of a founder launching a startup in the region. Quick overview, John. Media in the Middle East, what do you think of it? So yeah,
2: I mean... First of all, thanks for inviting me on the podcast. Um, Second of all, great question. It's a big one. Um, I think media in the Middle East, particularly digital media, is quite fascinating and very, very different to media in the West in a lot of ways, in some ways that people don't understand. So for example, I work for a, or I have worked for a large uh, media platform called Alba Weber News and Alba Weber Business specifically here in the UAE. In the UK, we've got the BBC, which I think, you know, started probably... You know, it's at least 50 years old. It's quite embarrassing, but it started before the war, and it has a long pedigree. And there's other news organizations that have, you know, been going in the states for almost a century. Some of them, whereas media out here, at least digital media, is relatively new. So sometimes, you know, I'll go back home, be in the states or in Europe, and I'll say, well, you know, I'm working for a news platform that's only 20 years old, and and like, well, you know why is that interesting and i'll also say when the platform started it began as a blogging service so it was really covering citizen voices online who were you know starting websites i guess the equivalent today would be podcasts and i guess what's different is that a lot of media in the west was started by governments or was large institutions or people with you know lots of capital whereas if you look at media in the middle east beginning in 2000 it really emerged out of the dot com boom Right, So there are a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of young creators who, perhaps in their own economies, they were shut out. But then they saw this internet boom, they started creating blogs. So you know, you've know, got um, websites in Levant like Harabish uh, or websites like uh, Mac2, which of course is part of the history of the startup ecosystem out here. It all began building these digital platforms. And so in a way, it began from the ground up. You know, with young people with good ideas or things they wanted to say that they couldn't say elsewhere.
0: So I'm not aware of the two blogs you just mentioned. Uh, What topics do they cover? So I think Maktoub
2: started in Arabic. It's one of the. first and earliest um, large-scale digital investments in the history of the region. And there'll be people listening to your podcast and people you've interviewed who can actually tell the history much, much better than me because I was not around in the Middle East when all this was happening. But starting in the early 2000s, a a group of guys started an Arabic content hub, I think, based out of Amman, and then it sort of went regional. And their idea was, you know, let's just have a platform for Arabic content. Now, it is part of the history of, of digital platforms and media. In the region, because eventually it was invested in by Yahoo. At uh, I can't remember the market capitalization, but it was tens of millions, if not, you know, more than tens of millions. So that, in a way, that was your first big digital media investment in the history of the Middle East, and it began with you know a group of guys with an idea, creating Arabic content and wanting to put that content out over on the internet.
0: So when you just threw out these numbers, immediately I thought, wait. Those numbers are big. Why why haven't I heard of this platform? And then you 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 reminded me that the platform is in Arabic, which made me think in my mind, oh no wonder I haven't heard of it because I don't consume content in Arabic. Though I grew up in the Middle East and I'm Bahraini, I'm Arab, I'm part of that subsect of people who grew up in a non-Arabic academic way. Therefore, I'm not comfortable reading Arabic, listening to Arabic media, consuming Arabic content and so on and so forth. So just by default, my go-to sources of content and media platforms are those that are developed and operated and managed in the States, the UK and other Western countries, let's say. Do you find that to be common across other con- non-Gulf countries? No, definitely. I think
2: it's the same. So I think, um, you know, most of m- m- most of my friends here and, and, and outside will will grow up with the same websites that that you did. I guess for me, so let's say, you know, you grew up in Bahrain and the UK and you're used to hearing one version of events. So if I'm reading in English as, a, as opposed to, you know, the, the history of Arabic content, if I come out here and I see an argument that I might not have read before, you know, on an English language website. So for example, it could be about any issues, you know, sport, phones, even what apps are cool. You know, we use different apps here than we do elsewhere. And so you'll read or you'll see a perspective on the world that you might not have read before or seen if you were sitting on your sofa back home. Now, I think, you know, increasingly that happens everywhere. But it is nice sometimes to see, you know, the story of Dubai being told in a way that might be different to the, the way people think about it in, in other countries.
0: Do you think that anyone who wants to enter the media space in the Middle East has to publish content in Arabic in order to be relevant across the region? Or can they get away with just English?
2: Yeah, that is a really, really good question.
0: So I have a friend who has children. She's Arab. Her kids are... Arabic. And she says to me, she struggles when she walks down the Arabic liter- kids' literature aisle because she cannot find a book that her children who go to an English-speaking primary school would relate to. And that's because the language it would be published in would be classical Fusha Arabic, when all they really hear and therefore understand and know to speak is Ami national colloquial Arabic. So uh, one thing I think publishers need to think about is: is the language they're publishing in relatable to their audience? And then, more importantly, secondly, is that colloquial dialect easily understood by the audience? Because a kid in Egypt may not necessarily speak the same language as a child in Dubai or a child in Lebanon, to so that matter. And in fact, if you haven't been exposed to any dialect, there are different languages.
2: I know it's super hard, and um, all I can say is you know. <laughs> But I do remember being in a meeting room with these appointed experts of the Arabic language. There was, you know, bloggers and journalists and, you know, uh, kind of spoken word poets in Arabic. I remember sitting in this room and they were debating whether to use Amiya, colloquial Amiya or fusa, in the kind of dialogue aspects of this book. And I just remember sitting there and watching everyone argue.
0: And the conclusion was classical then? The, the conclusion was everyone
2: looked and turned around to me. <laughs> and I, you know, I had to say, you know, I mean, guys, no idea. What
0: did, what did you opine on back then?
2: Well, in the end, I think they decided that the dialogue should be in Aenea, you know? for the reasons that you just suggested, because the story was actually old folk stories and fairy stories from around the region.
0: I'd like to transition into the work you're doing with the University of Sharjah and the Google News Award project, which I believe is around teaching machines to recognize Arabic as a language. Am I correct? Right. So,
2: that was an article in the National on a Google News initiative about the difficulty of machines reading Arabic. And again, there's a slight personal irony in this that I've told you the story of, of being in a room with Arabic experts and, and being appealed to. And the big joke on me is that, you know, it's 2020, and once again, I've got my name associated with an Arabic Arabic language uh, digital project um, without, you know, without like um, perfect... but yeah, that is a very cool project. It's funded by Google. I should point out that my side of the project is only with a consultancy called Conv and Alba Weber Business here at Media City. So the Sharjah University thing is actually a separate project, but it's looking at something similar, I think. And the issue there was that, so again, with large Arabic data sets, we're talking about terabytes, right? Terabytes of data, particularly editorial content, not PR kind of content, more sophisticated, uh, for the Arabic machine have great trouble reading it and deciphering it.
0: Why? Why don't they speak Arabic? That So,
2: you know, if you, in English now we have, uh, you know, the, we've got these new apps like Google Home and, and Siri. And a lot of that development began because machines became so much better at being able to read and tag uh, English language on the internet. And once they could do that, then it was only a couple of steps more to be able to, you know, interpret speech. So they hear you talk. They'll scan the internet. AI will find an answer. But to do all of that, they first have to be able to read in English. right? So machines not being able to read Arabic as well in 2020 is actually a significant problem. Now, don't get me wrong. If you use Google Translate on an article, it's often relatively accurate, although some people will probably disagree with that, that point. But as I said, at scale, terabytes of data, it really breaks down. And so machines have trouble tagging, that data, so that people can sort it, they have trouble categorizing it uh, in terms of machine learning and AI algorithms. So, let's say you have terabytes of data on golf or different countries, or you know what's on at the cinema. In English, the 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 ability to filter that will be quite advanced. In Arabic, super tough, lots of mistakes, not not very developed at all, and that makes you know selling Arabic content, creating services of the future, much more difficult. So Google have funded this project to basically train AI, uh, AI systems using the Google Cloud to improve, uh, you know, how machines read Arabic. So it's a small step, but it's a very interesting one. So
0: when you go about tutoring machines in the Arabic language, are you teaching them how to decode classical Arabic or again, colloquial Arabic? Because people still type in colloquial language
2: right so it's super hard again as you said much more difficult so i think the way machines learn language is quite appealing to me because it looks like what's happening um, according to Com, who are the experts at this but we're putting as much arabic content 20 years worth of arabic content into these machine learning algorithms on the cloud and then we are testing them for the fidelity of their responses again and again and again and ultimately as you said Somehow, through that process of iteration, we're going to have to train machines to know the difference between an EMEA sentence and a Fusa sentence. Where it's already happening is in e-commerce, for obvious reasons, because you know the product descriptions and that kind of stuff. But that's much more simple Arabic. Mm. But as you said, if you've got, you know, if you have something like uh, an opinion article or a novel, or even people talking on a chat.
0: Much more difficult. I have seen some chatbots in Arabic and definitely through the accelerator program at DIFC Fintech Hive, we had had a Arabic language chatbot come out, but I haven't actually tried it out myself because I'm not a native uh, or rather my inclination is never to utilize Arabic. And again, even though I'm Arab, uh, I would always go to the English version of a website. And if, I, God forbid, I use the chatbots firstly. I always prefer to speak to a human. But if I were to speak to a chatbot, it would be I the don't. English one. Yeah, You don't use right. chatbots or you don't like humans? I don't get,
2: I don't get <laughs> chatbots either. I've never really understood that whole thing. But if there is one in Arabic, then that's really interesting.
0: No, the company's called Lebiba actually, which means chatting in Arabic, I think. Literally.
2: Wow. Yeah, that's pretty neat. So, So they must have, you know... I'd love to know kind of what kind of challenges they had to to, to get that working. I think, I th- and I think what might have to happen is that the people who know the technology and, and the, the kind of business background merge with the, the you know, the literary people, the people who really love language or, and are really interested in it. I think that might be where the action happens.
0: I believe another project you're working on, speaking of, you know, content writers is how to change the economic model to get more people creating content, right? And you're using technology to do that.
2: So we've done that. So yeah, we have tried to do that in the past. So, so right now um, we're working on a blockchain project and it's probably the only blockchain publishing project in the middle east and that's with a very cool group of people called alexandria labs who developed something called the open index protocol in the states and and they've been working on it with various applications but one of the key things they're talking about is something they call walled garden so they're saying hey you know what john we're in the states there's a lot of people a lot of young people on youtube creating videos or music and all of them have to go on youtube or spotify in the past these platforms were great they were giving us opportunities but now the commission rates they're taking, some of the censorship they're using, some of the other business practices they're involving in are really even the algorithms. So there's a big debate over you know who gets preference on the YouTube algorithm, all, all these kind of debates. And they're saying, you know what, it's becoming really unfair. What if there's a way we can build new platforms where creators get to set their own commission rates or get to sell an album for a micropayment using cryptocurrency. Um, now, you can't do that. You work in fintech, so you'll know that's very difficult to do. But on on blockchain and using cryptocurrencies and, and new kind of micropayment technologies, creators can put an album up with a smart contract and you can listen to it live for a week and maybe pay, you know, a tenth of a dollar or whatever. So this is the kind of thing we're looking at. And again, as you said, it's about kind of creating platforms that encourage people to Upload their own content, create their own businesses, and also hopefully, you know, make more money and and, and be more successful than they might be on other platform.
0: Thank you very much. All right, have a great weekend. You too. You too. Take care. Thanks for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe to future episodes on your podcast listening platform of choice. And whilst you're there, leave a review and rate our show so that other aspiring innovators can find it. To find a summary of our discussion today and links to our guests, access our show notes by visiting our website, sparkwithshireen.com if You don't want to miss out on future announcements, subscribe to our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at Shereen. Before you go, I'd like to let you know that we love hearing from our listeners. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, including guest or topic recommendations, drop us a message through our website or social platforms. If you didn't have a pen or paper handy to write all this down, don't worry. We've gone ahead and added all these links in the episode description. All you have to do is scroll down and click when you have a moment. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.